Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. How are you, Akil? I'm very well, Andy. And How of are course, you? I'm well, and I know you're very well because five minutes ago I was talking to you in the last episode. This is a kind of a two-parter. <laughs> we're still on Easter, and uh, and we're I'm I'm going to take a trip, audience, and so we want to get this in the in the. You know, in the uh, I don't know vault. what you call it in the vault, yeah. Before before I uh, before I leave, and there's so much to talk about that uh, we thought that we would do this rather than skip a week, which we've never done. 120 episodes haven't skipped a week. So, all right. So last time we were talking about judicial ethics. Uh, talk. We talked a lot about Justice Thomas, who we said we were only going to talk a little about, and uh, we mentioned uh, the Wisconsin arm in arm celebrants. Uh, after the judicial election, um, and we briefly mentioned the contributions to the campaigns by uh, the judge in the Trump case. Let's go back to the judicial elections for a minute. The whole idea of judicial elections is is a little bit fraught, I think. Um, there's a tension in a democracy between elect- elected and appointed justices. Well, you know, How do you kind of think about that in terms of the what the right solution is, or, or what the what the arguments are on each side. For me, the biggest issue isn't even so much election as re-election. If we picked people politically, but we gave them job security thereafter, then they would be free to follow their own lights. But if they are going to be subject to re-election, then they might worry about how things look rather than how they are legally, how things look politically. And the problem with elections is it's going to be very hard for ordinary folks to actually evaluate whether a decision is correct or not, because the ordinary people at most are going to know the result. And that's actually imagining quite a lot of ordinary citizens that they even know the, the results of all sorts of cases rather than one or two high profile ones. There's in the nature of things, no way they could actually know the reasons that you gave. And even if they knew some of the reasons, they aren't going to be in a great position to know whether those reasons are actually the correct the reasons. They need to know the arguments on the other side, what the briefs were, what the precedents were, what the statute actually said and the regulations. And, and and there's no way ordinary citizens can do that. I can't do that. I'm a legal professional and, and I can't follow what every a judge in my own home state has done, much less every federal judge. It's enough to follow a few Supreme Court decisions in areas that are closely connected to my academic specialties. Yeah, I think one way to think about it might be that uh... There's always going to be a case or two that's controversial, and that's going to be the ones that the their opponent in the re-election campaign would draw attention to. And so judges, sitting judges that would have to stand for re-election, knowing that, would tend to, to, to identify those cases themselves ahead of time and kind of judge by soundbite rather than by the subtleties of, of the law. Well, how is this going to play in my re-election um, rather than what does the law say? So I think that right. How will know, it look? Yes. So uh, rather than what it, you know, what's the right legal answer? Yeah. So I guess an argument might be that you you want people to ju- choose 
judges in the first place on a democratic basis, based on things like character, values, you know, qualifications, things like that. But then you want them then to perform an odd office in a way that is perhaps less responsive to the populace as an elected official would and more responsible to their professional obligations which is hard and it's hard for the ju- for the public to judge professional performance so let's identify you know some important distinctions here between elections for lawmakers and executives legislators and executives on the one hand and for judges on the other let's just identify some important issues one is that in theory, lawmakers and legislators and executives, they're deciding what the law should be. And it's permissible, I think, for them to say, I think the law should be X and Y and Z. And if you agree, vote for me. And in fact, I promise that if elected, I'm going to try to do X and Y and Z, because that's what the law should be. And if you agree with me, vote for me. And there was a time, you see, when that was seen as almost inappropriate. People didn't run for the presidency at all. At most, they stood for it, and you could vote for them, but they never even made promises about what to do. They had a very judicialized understanding of, for example, the presidency. Well, well, we lost that you know, not long after George Washington. We had competitive elections with different visions of the candidates, different parts, but we didn't have platforms yet. Washington is above party. And then we have basically Jefferson and his folks who vision versus Adams and and his allies and, and their vision. But we didn't have political platforms and we didn't have promises. Then the 1840s comes along. Then some other things happen in between. Actually, James Monroe is unanimously reelected and there's not political competition quite at one little nanosecond in, let's say, 1820 when he's reelected unanimously in, or I think there was one elector who voted for John Quincy Adams, but nearly unanimously in a George Washington tradition. And then the second party system arises, and now you have political platforms making promises. If elected, this is what we Whigs you know, promise to do. Eventually, it's gonna, the two parties are going to be the modern-day Democratic and Republican Party. And every four years, they not only pick leaders who are running and not merely standing eventually, going out and actively trying to campaign. And this will increasingly develop. The idea of campaigns are pretty modern. Some candidates, even in the late 19th century, are just at home serving lemonade and not every day trying to mobilize folks. We have political parties with platforms and promises and candidates. And then eventually people running all the time and the campaign beginning the day after the last election ended in a permanent campaign mode. They are saying not just vote for me as a person because of who I am, a person of rectitude and character and past service to the Republic and credentials and credibility, but vote for what I will do, what I promise to do for my platform. Okay. Because in part, it's about what the law should be going forward. Well, that's different from judges because judges in theory aren't supposed to, much of the time, judicial common law is a different sort of thing that's a little legislative in nature. But much of what judges do 
in legal theory and principle is determine what the law already is, what the law in fact was at the time that the lawsuit arose. They are deciding as between, you know, two people, A and B, what the law was that applied to that transaction when they made a contract or when there was some sort of antitrust violation or not. What was the antitrust law at the time this episode occurred? One thing that we're seeing is, well, now we shouldn't be voting for someone on the basis of, you know, what the law should be, but what the law actually is. And it's going to be hard for ordinary citizens to know that issue by issue by issue. They might know what policies they prefer, but they won't know what the law already is on each little issue that comes before the court. So they're not going to be very good at that. That's what we already talked about because they haven't read the briefs and, and all the rest. So that's why judicial re-election is a problem because now the judge is sitting judge worrying about how this is going to look to voters, the result, rather than what the law actually is. But even judicial election, and, and oh, and they're never supposed to make a promise at all because that's in violation of the idea of judicial independence, that they have to follow their best legal judgment. So legislators and executives can make promises. Judges never. That's an absolute no-no. Okay. But even election, even if there weren't re-election, is a bit of an issue because if election is ultimately about who is going to be the most expert judge, who's going to be the best at figuring out what the law actually is, well, that's in part about, yes, your legal credentials, your legal expertise, your legal judgment. And are ordinary citizens the best hiring committee for that? Do they even know how to assess judiciousness and legal excellence and make good predictions about juridical, judicial excellence? Maybe they're not actually a great hiring committee for that purpose, even if we definitely believe they should be the hiring committee to pick the legislators and the executives. So I think, you know, we were as a democratic or society, we, we want to have the people to maintain their sovereignty, you know, at some level in, in selecting the judges. So it sounds like what you're proposing, at least at some levels, is to have election of judges, but reappointment is to, maybe they don't have life tenure, you know, at every level, but then they get reappointed by the executive with the maybe. Yeah. The and and, and I don't even love initial elections. But re-election is more problematic. Let me identify important distinctions among elections because there are about three or four important distinctions. Of course, at the federal level, we don't have elections at all, except indirectly we pick presidents who now increasingly tell us what sorts of judges they're going to appoint and sometimes even which judges they're going to appoint. Donald Trump revolutionized the nature of the federal judicial selection process. And I don't say wrongly. I think it was just inevitable and he was the first to do it when he told us in advance in 2016, I'm going to pick for the Supreme Court off the following list. Well, is that a and revolution? Then, and he though, did. And Biden didn't really. And then he updated the list. What? But Biden didn't follow suit. So it's hard to say that it's correct. A revolution. But I think going forward, increasingly presidents will be doing that. Mm -hmm. um, Trump had a, particular issue because he was perceived by a lot of conservatives as not remotely in the part of the conservative movement that believes in a certain vision of the judicial role, a certain judicial philosophy. The FedSoc, Federal Society, believes in that, but Trump wasn't a FedSoc person. So he basically pledged, in effect, 
to pick off of the FedSoc list. Mm-hmm. Right. But, I, um, but when you say he revolutionized it, it, well, I think it remains to be seen whether that's a revolution. It's, or, it's, or I'm or making one-off. a prediction going forward mm-hmm. that eventually both parties will be moving in that direction. Just like there was a time when parties actually had candidates and not platforms. I haven't been able to find, I'm in the new book that I'm working on, I haven't been able to find the Whig party platform of 1836. Apparently, I don't think it exists. But by 1848, both parties are having platforms. But there was a time between 1824 and 1848 when that wasn't just true of each and every party, each and every presidential election cycle. Now you expect parties to have platforms, although I don't remember if the Republican Party had one for Trump's reelection. That not. may have been like the, no, nope, the, first, nope. the, the first time in a very, you know, in, in forever. OK, but yes, going forward, I'm predicting that both parties may end up approximating the Trump approach. But even if they don't have the list, they'll tell you what sorts of folks they're looking for. And so, so that um, moves but, us more towards ele- that's more in the direction of election of judges compared to the previous system. Do you approve of that? Well, I approved of what Trump did because truthfully, he didn't do it. The FedSoc did. And I actually think the FedSoc is a respectable organization that was that looks in par- for legal expertise of a certain sort. Now, they pick conservatives with judicial expertise and the right judicial values of a certain sort, but they're not so different in this regard from the ABA. These are legal elites that are picking folks, one from right of, of center, the other from the ABA is frankly left of center, who impress other legal elites. Put differently, cards on the table, want to be transparent as the audience deserves that as they can be. I thought the FedSoc list was composed of people who are impressive, by which I mean, yeah, they they went to good law schools. They did very well in law school. They clerked for distinguished federal judges. They clerked for federal justices. They are themselves very well respected state and federal judges. I think off of the list, the initial list, almost every one of them was a very well-respected judge, although admittedly right of center. So they were picking people who were kind of, yes, the sorts of folks that you would get if you had kind of a pure merit selection filtered by ideology. And and the ABA also, so it's not just a, a plebiscite about who's good looking about who is particularly, you know, some people are more charismatic. Who has a famous last name? Bobby Kennedy Jr. Mm. Um, who, yes, okay, um, and that's not what this list was. Who has lots of money? So it wasn't about personal charisma or dynastic name recognition or just a lot of money. And campaigns for other positions can be about those things. And Bobby Kennedy, the, the father had name and he was the brother of a president and money because he was a Kennedy. And oh my God, he had Christmas. I grew up, you know, absolutely adoring Bobby Kennedy, mesmerized by him. He, he was my guy, you know, when I was a little boy. I was 55 years ago. I still remember all that. 55 years ago, last week, Martin King was gunned down. And two months later, Bobby Kennedy was gunned down. That was 55. I was in New York on the 55th anniversary of Martin King's assassination. I was passing through Harlem. And they were sort of mentioning that right in front of the Apollo Theater. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, I, there was a little tour that was being given and that was last week. Do I want my judges to be basically people of charisma, dynastic name recognition and wealth? No, I want to, but elections can be sometimes those are uh, about those things. Right. Well, I think that, um, you know, judges in the end, you want them to be professionals in a way that you, yes. that you don't necessarily need your congressman to be or something like that. Um, so that- so I guess what I am saying is the Trump thing, maybe, Andy, you're right, maybe it won't be replicated. Maybe Trump had to do it because he had zero credibility as a law person, and um, so he had to kind of commit himself. But in the future, maybe both parties won't do that. Well, I think people uh, were concerned I, that he I, was going to appoint, you know, Sarah Palin. Judge or, Judy. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, no yeah. Clowns, it's just some, you know. uh, some Roy so- Cohen-like thug. You know, who happened to have a law degree and and he surrounded himself by all sorts of legal thugs, you know, some consigliere type. Yes. The people on Trump's list, I'm telling the audience, weren't picked by Trump. They were picked by the Federal Society. And I knew many of the people on the list and they were people that I actually respected in terms of just pure merit. So that's federal selection. And that's of the justices. And then, of course, lower court judges also are they're not elected. They're nominated by presidents and confirmed by senates. On the state side, we have often elections, not always. And I want to introduce some distinctions about the different kinds of elections. Here are three or four. One, and we've already talked about this one. Do you have to be elected to get the position or are you somehow appointed to the position? And then there's an election thereafter. If there's an election thereafter, is it a mere retention election where it's just yes, no, up, down on you? Or... Is it a kind of election where it's a competitive election? Your seat basically lapses at a certain point. There's an opening, and then maybe you can run, but other people can run, either to keep you on the court or to, to get on the court in the first place. So is it a competitive election as opposed to a mere retention election? If it's a competitive election, is it one where there's formally a party affiliation, a partisan which is measured in part by whether there's a primary process that's party-based to, to narrow the final selection down to two people. So are there, are there partisan primaries and or is there a party designation on the ballot when you're finally picked? Does it say R or D? Some states, I think these are the worst states, are competitive partisan elections and then there are re-elections even after that so so that's to me the worst combination is there's election and re-election and it's competitive and it's partisan and the temptation is going to be to then to start making promises and in fact judicial ethics says you can't do that and if you did ever make a promise one way that we try to enforce the ban on promises to say well that's mandatory recusal, because if you've made a promise, then you actually have forfeited judicial independence and you can't sit on the case. And now knowing that and working backwards, if you make a promise, your opponent can say, I'm not making a promise, but that guy just did. And you can't vote for him because actually he's going to be useless to you because the rules of ethics are going to require him to actually be recused precisely because he made a promise that he wasn't supposed to make. Yeah. And another quote from that movie, Judgment Nuremberg. The uh, one of the defendants, Ernst Janning, who's a fictional character, but is a composite of real, uh, real judges that were tried at Nuremberg. Um, he 
admits you know, he gets he he has racked with guilt and he gets on the stand to admit his his terrible transgressions and the worst thing that he says he says the worst thing that he did is he talks about a particular case and he says i had reached my verdict in the feldenstein case before the case began uh i would have found mm-hmm. him guilty whatever the evidence and that's mm-hmm. you know the worst thing that he could do which is the equivalent i guess of making a promise right. before making you hear a the promise evidence. right So my view is that in the confirmation process, the federal level, it's all kabuki theater because people say, well, what do you think about this issue or that one? They say, well, I couldn't possibly say, you know, because no, you can say, you just can't promise. And of course, we understand that because once you're on the bench, you're ruling in the first abortion case or the second abortion case or the first gun case or the second gun case or, you know, the the first school prayer case or the second school. And you're telling us what you think about school prayer or abortion or guns or antitrust or whatever. And that doesn't mean you have to recuse yourself in the next case, the case after that, just because you've told us in, in the first case, you know, what your views are in general in a certain area of law. You haven't made any promise at all. You've, you're open to actually repudiating your earlier decision if you decide it's 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 wrong on reflection. So there's nothing wrong with making clear your current legal views. But every single nominee across the spectrum, you know, plays this game. Say, oh, I couldn't possibly tell you what I think. But every nominee plays this game, and every mm-hmm. senator plays along, and it's all fake, fake, fake. And I. And I've been an opponent of it forever. And I've testified at these confirmation hearings and they're FaceTime for the senators. The nominees are not very honest, sometimes in evading the, the questions. It's no one has, comes off well, in fact, in this. Um, and, and you remember, I said, here's what it should be. It shouldn't even be televised at all. Nominee X, often it's your honor because you're already a judge. Here are six important cases that have been decided over the last 30 years. I want you to take your time. You can even use a law clerk. I want you to submit within a week concurrence or dissent in these cases. Tell me actually what you think the right approach. If you completely agree with one of the actual opinions, dissenting, concurring, majority in the opinion, you can just can be one sentence. You know, I would have agreed or I do agree with Justice X's dissent or Justice Y's majority opinion. But here, these these are actual decisions. They're, they're, They're facts. They're not hypothetical. Brown versus Board of Education. Roe versus Wade. The Carson case, Dobbs, Bruin. Tell me what you would have done in each of those cases. But uh, getting back to the, your statement that they're not being honest, I mean, uh, this was something that a uh, prominent politician sort of seized on uh, this week when she was quote, made a couple of uh, statements uh, on television, I think on CNN, that were uh, sort of caught your attention, I think. Um, so... Uh, um, Who's the she? This is AOC. Um, ah. So, so one thing that she said was that uh, Justices Thomas and Kavanaugh should be impeached for having lied at their confirmation hearings. And then the other thing that she said was that uh, in the and we were going to talk about this. I think that in the case uh, regarding the abortion pills, um, that the uh, president should just ignore the ruling by the Texas, by the judge in, in Texas. 
So those are a couple of statements that you know, changing the subject a little bit that got your got your attention. I wonder if you wanted to comment on those at all. Yeah, um, I'm a Democrat. She's in my party, and I'm a critic of much of what she says. First, just talk about this thing that she said. We'll put the clip up with uh, Anderson Cooper. I've been on that show with Anderson Cooper, and I really like Anderson Cooper. And by the way, Andy, just our, our podcast audience would be very disappointed if I didn't mention that he's a Yaley, yes. <laughs> and he is. And I think he's a lovely person, and he's been very kind to me. Let me tell, just tell you why. Because I said in the previous episode, oh, I'm loyal to people. He wanted me to be on the show a couple of years ago. It was January 4th, I think, three years ago. And I said, you know, no, I, it's it's kind of awkward for me. Um, his staff reached out. I said, I'm kind of busy that day, but I'll do it on one condition. Could I, if you have me on, just wish my dad happy birthday because it's his birthday today. Anderson did one better. He actually, at the end of the interview, you know, said, and we understand that today is your father's birthday. You know, happy birthday, Dr. Amar. Like, you know, the guy's a prince of a fellow. He's, he's a good person. Um, and thank you, Anderson, for, for that just act of human kindness. So I've been on that show and it's a great show and, and I and I do watch it. But yes, a- AOC said, well, presidents should just disregard court opinions that, you know, uh, that they think are absolutely egregiously wrong or something. Think, how does that work? And and if Donald Trump, God forbid, is reelected, is that going to be your standard? The presidents can just disregard judicial decisions that 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 they say, you know, are wrongly decided because with all due respect, AOC, you think the case is wrong. I might even agree with you about that, but that's why we have appellate courts. Okay. Well, we, we don't just allow presidents willy nilly to disregard judicial opinions. And that way lies madness. And surely you would see that if the, the, the polarity were reversed and it were a judicial decision that a Republican president, Trump, you know, disagrees with and says is outrageous okay you no know, the words so you, the that, words you used how would that work it's, which is that's exactly what edison cooper said in response when and, her, she, he said right, how would and, that and work you don't you don't and he, he was kind of aghast that said here's what she could have said that's genuinely it would have been genuinely intelligent which is these national injunctions where one judge is actually issuing a decree for all of America, they're very problematic. They lead to forum shopping and judge shopping. That's especially true of this judge in Amarillo, Texas, because he's the only judge in his district. So when you file in that district, you know you're going to get that judge and you know actually his sensibilities. But you have a real problem where one judge actually issues a nationwide injunction against the government saying you may not, you cannot do X. And now you have some other judge in a different part of the country saying, actually, not only can you do X, you must do X. So one judge and a national injunction is telling you you must do X. And another judge is telling you 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 may not do X. So what are you supposed to do if if you're the executive branch? So if she had said, we really need to rethink the rules of national injunctions because there are concerns about judge shopping and form shopping and in situations that aren't class actions where individual litigants are getting relief far beyond what's necessary to redress the harm that they allege to have been done to themselves. So I thought, wow, that's pretty impressive. She hasn't been to law school, but someone's actually advising her on some of the legal complexities here and there really is an issue. And 
you've done your homework, AOC, and well done. Okay, you haven't gone to law school, but apparently someone's actually explained to you some stuff about form shopping and judge shopping and nationwide injunctions and some of the complexities here. But she didn't say any of that. That really disheartened me. Now, earlier, let's try to connect dots here. I was talking about differences between legislators and judges. So why is AOC so prominent? Because she has genuine skills and virtues. They are, they include charisma, you know, and good looks. And, and this helps you if you're Bobby Kennedy, you see, or John Kennedy. I understand that in the political world, I'm not so naive to think that unattractive people like me are going to do, well, I like the judiciary, see, because it's filled with actually ugly people like me, you know, who, but, but we're thinkers and we went to law school and we got good grades and we do our homework and we listen to both sides and blah, blah, blah. These are the judicial virtues. Okay. So she's a charismatic person but she's never been to law school and she hasn't done her homework and she doesn't know what she's talking about, but she's getting a lot of attention, you know, in the Twitterverse. And, and judges do not do this. And this, I respect them for basically reading the briefs, hearing the arguments for both sides, having to explain themselves in written opinions with pushback. I want them to have law clerks who actually, for reasons we've talked about, giving them additional input from across the board. So they really hear all the good arguments pro and con on various issues in addition to the the briefing and the oral argument. Let me say another thing about why I'm sometimes, especially in our last episode too, I tend to be you know protective of the judiciary and respectful of it. Ordinary people look and they see these judges living, uh, justices especially, quite privileged lives. They're, you know, they're in mansions. They're on uh, private planes, bombardier, Learjets or whatever. I'm just probably messed two things up. Learjet is different than a bombardier. But if I knew my jets, you see, which I don't, but private jets, yachts. And, you know, there's a sense like, wow, these are just, you know, corrupt, elite, fat cat, out of touch folks. And compared to the lives of ordinary people, I get that. Let me take a big step back because no one is born on the Supreme Court. You get appointed to the Supreme Court. And in today's world, you get appointed to the Supreme Court only after you've been a lower court judge. Every single member of the current Supreme Court, except Elena Kagan, was a sitting lower federal court judge at the time of appointment. And she had been Solicitor General of the United States, which is a very judicialized position and was Dean of the Harvard Law School and a very distinguished law professor and had clerked on the Supreme Court. So all of them were public servants before they were justices. And were they famous public servants? No, they were on court of appeals and they get very little attention. Were they likely to be on the Supreme Court? No, because there are a hundred federal appellate judges and nine Supreme Court justices. The odds are actually quite low. Were they famous? No. Were they likely to be on the Supreme Court? No. Were they well compensated? Not if you compare it to what they could have done instead and what some of them gave up to be lower federal court judges or what they could do immediately after leaving a federal court. If you're a federal court judge, I'm guessing a federal appellate court judge, you maybe make between 150 and $200,000 a year. You, you could look this up, but, but it's in that range. Maybe it's 220. That would be tops. Um, Andy, why don't you look it up right now? District judge, 
233,000, Circuit Judge 247,000, okay. Associate Justice 286,000, Chief Justice 299,000. Now, to our audience who aren't lawyers, they may say, wow, you know, what I wouldn't give for that, okay? But what I'm saying to the audience is when you compare that to what the lawyers who argue before the Supreme Court make, to what the the judges or be before the lower courts. Let's just take lower court judges first. So they're making two, two, um, two, between two twenty and two fifty a year. That's less by far than most of their law school classmates are making, because these guys clerk for the Supreme Court and were the top of the top at, at top law schools. There's less many of their law school classmates are me. Not all of them. Some of their law school classmates are just doing really virtuous stuff, public interest stuff as um, public defenders or prosecutors, but it's less than most of their Supreme Court co-clerks make because most of them clerked on the Supreme Court. And it's less than their law clerks will be making in three years. And it's less than they would be making in private practice if they left. It's less than they were making in private practice if they left private practice to become judges. To repeat, they're highly unlikely to be on the Supreme Court. So that's not why you become a lower court judge in in general. Your odds are, are not great at all. And you don't get very much money compared to what you could have been making. And you're not famous. You're doing this because public service. And I respect you for it. And then the best of the best of them become justices on both the right and the left. And it's easy to get demagogue against them. Now, AOC today, if she left Congress, is a celebrity and she could have a reality TV show and probably make a lot of money, sort of Sarah Palin style. So today I understand that, you know, she could make even more money. But if she had never been elected to Congress... Could she have been a a high-powered lawyer? Well, no, because she didn't go to law school. Is she a great actress or singer? Or does she have some other great marketable skill? I'm not sure that I'm aware of that. So when she first got elected to Congress, she's actually making more money than she ever could have. Um, And that's not true of these justices. They took pay cuts to be lower federal court judges or solicitors general or something. And then lightning struck and they and they ended up at the Supreme Court. And the audience should sort of know know that. Well, I think it's look, I don't think it's just a matter of justices. I think most public servants at the federal level are are making less than they would than they could make in you know, certainly in political yes. positions. And, yes, and I respect you know, there's a them. tendency to demonize. I, I can't stand it when I see people demonizing everyone that goes to Washington, like that this is like the political class, you know, and this and that. Yes. Certainly, certainly people can capitalize on their time in government when they leave, go on lecture circuit, whatever. But, uh, you know, I, I know, I know. That they're and, def- and and that's why your audience sometimes hear me actually sort of you know defend a folks because it's so easy to demagogue against them. Yes, I think we're, you know we 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 should be grateful. I mean, my son had the opportunity to work in in the Obama White House, um, and uh, you know these are dedicated people that work incredibly hard for very little money compared to what they could. And that's why you like the West Wing, and I do too, because it kind of captures that ethos. Mm-hmm. And since we're talking about Matthew. Yes, um, I'm hoping that Matthew makes a gazillion dollars now, you know, and 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 he deserves it, and he has the talent to do it. Well, that but would be nice. but there was a time 
You know, there was a time, you see, when he was using all his energy, not for himself and his family, which he's entitled to, to do, but he was, he was using it for the rest of us. And thank you, Matthew, for your service. And I say that to our veterans, um, as well. And I'm not a Trump person. And one of the reasons I'm not a Trump person is he never, ever, ever did public service. He was, he didn't show me that he was in it for us and every single other president did. And so AOC, you, you know, you're, I don't love that you're demagoguing against, you know, fellow public servants. Right. Although also in her, in her defense though, I would say mm-hmm. you know, there was a, a meme going around that she had like a net worth of, you know, millions of dollars or whatever. And that is just totally untrue. She, you know, correct. She's, she, she's, how, how would, how would she have had that? Because she was a barista before being elected and she doesn't make a lot of money as a congressperson and there are ethical rules about outside. Now, if she writes an autobiography, she'll make a lot of money. And we talked about that. One of the things you can do is you can write a book. And if a lot of people buy the book, you can make money. And it's complicated because I think there are two ways of making a lot of money off of a book. And I'm, I'm not the best person to ask me because I haven't made lots of money off of the book. But here are the two ways. Here's the clean way. You write a book and a million people independently, one by one by one, buy because they want to read the book. And that's utterly clean. Here's a different way. You sell a million copies because 50 people who are insiders each buy 20,000 copies and tell you that that's what they're doing. And you're very grateful to them. And then they give it to everyone in their company or something like that. And the reason that you sold a million copies either way, and if you sell a million copies, you've just made $4 million, $6 million. Congratulations. But it's one thing to persuade a million people one by one by one democratically. And it's a different thing for insiders to basically, in effect, Final money your way. Now you mentioned earlier before we got off onto the on this about national injunctions. Um, did you want to expound on that a little bit? One of the leading scholars on this is a friend of mine. His name is Sam Bray. On the other side, there's the the work of a very distinguished scholar named Amanda Frost. I'm not an expert on this. My inclination is to think that national injunctions are are rather problematic for reasons having to do with form shopping and other things. And in the absence of uh, class actions, uh, national nationwide injunctions seem to sweep more broadly than an individual litigant or a small group of litigants are in, entitled to demand. They, they're entitled to get a remedy for the wrong done to them. But unless there's a class action which requires certification and which has to meet certain hurdles, I have some doubts about it. I want to repeat, this is not an area that I've studied in details as a scholar. I have lots of opinions, as our audience knows, about lots of things because I've actually researched them. I have not researched this, but there's Sam Bray on one side and he's substantial and there's Amanda Frost on the other side and she has a very distinguished reputation. Maybe, Andy, we can even put some things up on the podcast, some 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 citations to their scholarship. Okay. You know, um, as far as this particular case goes with the uh, judge in Texas ruling that the uh, one of the abortion pills uh, is you know can't be distributed um, he's saying that the the FDA violated its procedures um, among other things so I don't I don't have obviously the lawyer's opinion on this I, I did look at it and as a doctor as someone that you know, worked in the medical field for, for many years and, you know, had to deal with 
prescribing medications and so forth. And I also have done quite a bit of uh, clinical research and work with drug companies and drug approvals and things like that. So I do have some expertise. You know, a few things struck me in the opinion. Um, one was that it really read not like a judicial opinion, but like a brief, you know, or, or even an op-ed. You know, it was very much an, a, an advocacy document. Um, and so there were a lot of sort of rhetorical tricks that seemed to be employed to try to make points that, that weren't really necessarily valid. So, for example, the, uh, the judge talks about basically what he's saying. He's, he's substituting his judgment for that of the FDA is in saying that the, mm-hmm. that the, uh, you know, these drugs that were approved as being safe, he's saying, well, they're not safe. Okay. And so w- what evidence does he give for that? Well, he, he points to the original approvals around 2000. He says, well, there were out of 575,000 prescriptions, there were more than 950 adverse event cases. So he's saying that as if you should be alarmed by that fact, but the, the term adverse event is actually a term of, of art when it comes to drug approval. An adverse event is when anything happens. So, you know, you're in a drug, comp, you're in a drug study and you, you sneeze in the doctor's office. That's an adverse event. Okay, does this have anything to do with the drug? We have, you know, no idea. Is it, is, you know, does it even matter? You know, no, not, not necessarily. What matters is what's called first of all, serious adverse events, which is a different classification uh, than adverse events. And he doesn't list how many serious adverse events there are. He doesn't even address that. Um, he says, well, the eight women died out of the 575,000, but there's no causal relationship that's drawn. And is that a large number, by the way? Well, compare, the answer would probably be no. Okay, so that's 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 one thing. Okay, there's just this, the, the evidence that he's providing for it being unsafe from that point of view, or from the studies showing that it was unsafe, is very questionable. Uh, then the other thing that I noticed was that there've been well over a hundred studies on the safety of these drugs in the over twenty years since they were approved, and according to the professional organizations, the I forget the names, the exact names of the organization, but something like the American Academy of Obstetric and Gynecologic Physicians, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. They that they overwhelmingly or even universally have shown these drugs to be among the safest drugs out there, safer, for example, than Viagra, you know, or 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 a variety of other you know commonly used uh, drugs that are, that most people are not looking to pull off the market. Um, Mm -hmm. so that, that was another thing. And another thing is that, well, there's obviously a large market for these drugs. And if indeed they were unsafe and people were dropping dead left and right, the market would have resulted in either new drugs that were safer or at least many, many clinical studies, you know, of Mm -hmm. alternative, uh, attempted, you know, variants on these drugs. And there's nothing like that. And then finally, the, uh, the actual, Adverse reactions that the or or complications, if you will, that the judge tries to call attention to as being the actual things that are happening to women from taking these drugs. The main thing that he talked about are that they would suffer like post traumatic stress from having aborted the fetus, you know, or that they would see 
the blood and this would cause them to become very upset. You know, things like that. That I mean, and this is not the kind of thing that one, you know, normally would take a drug off the market for. Um, and then I guess one more thing that I would say is that when he was talking about standing, and again, I don't, not, I don't want to get into the technicalities about standing, but he was saying that, well, doctors in this pro-life doctors organization that is one of the, uh, that's suing here, um, that's a petitioner, I guess, um, he's saying, well, they have potential uh, damage because they might have to see a patient that had a complication from one of these drugs, and then they would be at risk of being sued for malpractice if if they did something wrong. I mean, this seems such a tenuous, you know, connection mm-hmm. that any drug could that that could be true of any drug, any time. So why do we even have an FDA? You know, would be rather why don't we just have you know any drug be subject to any judge's you know whim at any time? So those are my my impressions as a physician reading this over, for what it's worth. And here, and here's what I love about the podcast, Andy. You see, every so often, you know, you're getting expertise not just from Akil on the Constitution, but from from Andy in his wheelhouse. So what you said seems very plausible to me. I don't really know any of that stuff, and I found your, that presentation very persuasive. Now, I'm pro-choice, and our friend Ruth Marcus at the Washington. Post who has agreed to be on this podcast and will be reaching out to her at a certain point. Um, and Ruth, if you're out there, you know, I haven't forgotten that we've invited you and you said yes. But truthfully, you wrote a piece about this and you had me at hello and then you lost me actually. So here's actually um, her piece and we let's try to post it on the website. The title of her piece is The Worst Federal Judge in America Now Has a Name. And Ruth writes with style. I really um, adore her. And of course, our audience needs to know that She's a Yale College graduate. She overlapped with Andy and with me um, at Yale College. And she was on the Yale Daily News back in the day, I think editor-in-chief of the Yale Daily News. And here's what she says at the beginning. She, she writes with such flair, and uh, I love her writing. Congratulations are in order for Judge so-and-so. The competition is fierce and will remain so, but for now he holds the title, Worst Federal Judge in America. Not simply for the poor quality of his judicial reasoning, although more, much more about this in a bit, what really distinguishes this judge is the loaded content of his rhetoric. Not the language of a sober-minded impartial jurist, but of a zealot committed more to promoting a cause than applying the law. And so she got my interest. And I thought, wow, this is very interesting. But then what she criticizes him for, actually, which is very different than what you criticize him for, I did not find outrageous candidly. And she she picks two things in particular, and we can just talk about them very briefly. She says that he, that is the judge, describes the doctors who perform this procedure as abortionists. And I think that, you know, you have a choice of terms, but that's not improper because if you believe in abortion, and she does, and I do, then uh, we shouldn't be afraid of that label. Yes, people who perform abortions are abortionists. There are reasons that abortions you know, need to be performed in all sorts of situations. Even those of us who, who believe in the sanctity of unborn, innocent human life actually think that abortions are necessary in certain situations. And so I don't think it's outrageous to, that someone uses the label abortionist. And But she takes offense at that. He describes physicians who perform the procedure with the label abortionist, okay? And then she's also upset that he refers 
to the subject of the abortion as unborn humans. So let me find the sentence here. And I, and I think if those of us who are pro-choice need to acknowledge, yes, okay, and there, there are 46 chromosomes. There you have it. And, and there are technical distinctions between zygotes and embryos and blastocysts and feti and all of the, the rest. But she's just outraged that this judge talked about unborn humans. Um, I do think he uses uh, inflammatory language, though. Like when he says that... He uh, might. Oh, he might. Yeah. But I'm talking about what, what she had in her piece. Mm-hmm. Remember, she has me at hello and then uses mm-hmm. loses me with those examples where I actually think, actually, Ruth, maybe there's some problems with the opinion, but it's not calling these entities unborn humans and it's not calling the physicians abortionists. Though That's within the boundaries, I think, of genuinely... Fair description, especially if you're of one point of view, which, and I'm of the other point of view. Ruth, those of us who are pro-choice need to come forward and say, I had an abortion. I support an abortion. And here's why, because there were these circumstances and the law would have actually made the situation worse. An abortion, anti-abortion law would have made the situation worse in all these ways. I don't think we should deny that there are 46 chromosomes, you know, and that's a human being. And if you think that that's outrageous, just that description, Ruth, I think that you're missing an opportunity to actually say, yes, 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 this is all true. Yes, they're abortionists. Yes, they're performing abortions. That's what abortionists do. Yes, this is 46 chromosomes. Yes, you can say that's human life. Yes, actually, you can say here's how it works by depriving the entity, the unborn human of nutrition. And here's why, even though all that's true, we believe that it, that there are situations where that's something that the law should protect. We are pro-choice. And here's why, because there, there are other things going on as well. So maybe actually it is an unborn human, but it won't be viable and it's going to and it won't survive. And it's less cruel, you see, to, to end now than to wait six months or eight months or even a birth that w- won't be survivable. OK, there, there are all sorts of things that we can say there. There are situations of, of incest. There are lots of things going on. As I said, she had me at hello and actually lost me by saying, you can't say human, you can't say uh, unborn, can't say abortionist. But what you said earlier, there's a, a real a problem with standing and he doesn't, you know, and, and he's misdescribed actually what the statistics are on safe and effective. And that did move me. I'm just giving you an example, Andy, of what didn't move me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the way, on an abortionist, they're not... I don't think you're actually performing an abortion by prescribing a medication. It's not exactly uh, the same thing as getting in, going in there with a, you know, a, ah. a surgical instrument, you know. Okay. And, but maybe that's what she was saying, but I just missed it. But I, I no, thought she, she just said, you know, but just I, the, the generic term abortionist is inflammatory. And I don't mm-hmm. think um, it's a procedure and, and, and it's healthcare. And sometimes it's life saving healthcare because it saves the life of the woman. And sometimes it's, pro-life because this pregnancy is never going to be viable, but if it ends soon, you can actually have another new life brought into this world. There are all sorts of things that that incline me to be pro-choice, but I don't flinch from these descriptions. Right. Well, I think the the bottom line here is that the logic of the opinion is deeply flawed. So, and, and, you know, when you superimpose you know, the choice of words, which while might be defensible, are nevertheless, you know, 
like sandpaper, you know, uh, or, you know, bad chalk on a blackboard. And uh, here's what she said, which I found actually interesting. She says, well, Alito didn't use that in Dobbs. I'm thinking, oh, but you you were very nice to Alito in the Dobbs decisions. And Alito went out of his way actually not to be inflammatory. And there's a difference between writing for five justices and writing for the United States Supreme Court on the one hand and, and being one judge out in Texas. And, well, we certainly haven't heard the last of this because, you know, onto the Fifth Circuit and then onto the Supreme Court, I think, you know, beyond that, most likely. When that will happen is another matter and what's going to happen in the meantime. And now you've got this judge in Washington and dueling injunctions. So I think... uh, Another reason against, as a structural policy matter, nationwide injunctions, at least in the absence of class actions, is... They can force the Supreme Court to hear a case before there's been percolation. Percolation is a term of art in which the Supreme Court often benefits from multiple judges below state and federal thinking about an issue before it gets to the Supreme Court. And if one judge picked by partisan ideological litigants or form shopping, and the left has its favorite places and persons, and the right has its. But if very early, you know, people win a race to the courthouse and get a nationwide injunction, that can force the Supreme Court to weigh in before there's been a chance for this percolation to occur. That's a structural reason for being skeptical about these national injunctions. Believe it or not, there's actually a lot more to talk about. We're coming to the close of this podcast anyway. But we, I guess we, we owe you the uh, word or two on the Trump case uh, that we promised you last week. Um, and we did talk a little bit about the judge, not much, and his $10. And, you know, not only is that bad from an ethical point of view, he's also stingy. But... Uh, <laughs> Um, well, we don't, I tell you, judges aren't that well compensated and they're public bucks, servants, but, but okay. um, you're talking to the original stingy person, <laughs> as you, as, as, as you know, look, rule number one for judges is you're not supposed to contribute to campaigns. In general, you're not supposed to you know, be involved in partisan politics. Ideally, forget the money. In most judicial ethics manuals, they say, don't put a bumper sticker on your car. Don't put a campaign sign on your lawn. The awkward thing, though, is when you are involved yourself and you're picked in and subject to re-election by a partisan election, you're already on a certain team and you're part of a slate of candidates. And so this is, again, some of the awkwardness about having judges not just elected, but re-elected and not just re-elected, but in competitive elections and not just in competitive elections, but competitive partisan elections. Now, I don't know all the rules in New York, but in a competitive partisan election, your re-election is vote for me. I'm team blue. I'm I'm team red. And, and if I'm team red, then I'm for all the other team red people. And if I'm team blue, I'm for all the other team blue people. And that also raises the issue in Wisconsin, where the winner of this election is raising her arms with all the other team blue people already on the court. And I don't like at all the idea that there are teams on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, but that's the world we're moving toward. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, you know, we'll have to see, but I think that the they're not going to always vote as a block, I think, is, is most likely what, what will happen. The implication is... And on the, and might, on the but, U.S. Supreme Court, 
Um, we actually have statistics every year. They're generated by the Harvard Law Review and SCOTUS blog and, and others. But those are the two, I think, go-to places for empirics. Oh, there's also a thing called empirical SCOTUS blog. They do cross-correlations. So they tell you every year just how often each justice voted with each other justice. I think that the highest coefficient of correlation was between the two justices who voted together most often, I believe, were the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh, and they voted together 94% of the time or something last term. But no two justices vote together 100% of the time, and definitely no group of five you know, votes together 100% of the time or anything close on the Supreme Court. So the other thing about the Trump case is that, um, you know, the indictment is out and people have looked at it and, you know, it involves uh, saying that one crime is, is made into a felony by virtue of the fact that it was related to another crime. Um, and there was a complaint that uh, District Attorney Bragg hasn't disclosed in the indictment what the second crime is. You know, he hasn't said oh, this is this. He just said it's related to other crimes without specifying what they are. Um, so my understanding from from you, Akil, is that he's not required to do so at this point to specify what that crime is. Apparently not, because the element of the offense is asked to be in connection with another crime, but that need not be apparently specified in the indicting instrument. And I think what's interesting is some people have said, well shouldn't he have to charge him with the other crime? Um, in which case you would know because he charged him with it. So first of all, he's charged him with a lot of crimes, the 34 different crimes. But in addition to that, my understanding is that one of the possibilities in, that he lays out in the statement of facts that, uh, that might be the crime that he in, in the end says, here's the you know, sort of exacerbating crime, um, that could be a federal crime. And he can't charge him with a federal crime. So, so that, but he, but he nevertheless is allowed to use a federal crime, and you might say, well, how's he going to prove that he committed another federal crime if if he's not if he's not charged by the feds with it, and if he's not charging him himself? And what I've read is that some of this has to do with Michael Cohen. That Michael Cohen has pleaded guilty to federal crimes that are relevant to this case. So I think that. You know, this kind of complicated interaction between state crimes, federal crimes, or maybe there's questions of preemption. Um, uh, these are things that I think will come, you know, will be have occasion to talk about as we go forward. Yeah, and I'm not an expert on each and every one of these things, but I can tell the audience two or three things. First, on the fact that maybe one of the exacerbate, maybe the exacerbating offense is a federal one. Um, in technical federal jurisdiction terminology, and I teach federal jurisdiction. And in fact, I, I got out of it. For, I was hired to teach it. I taught it every year for the first 20 years I was on the faculty. Then for a while, I haven't been teaching it. But for my many sins, I'm I'm back. Just when I thought it was out, they keep pulling me back in. Okay, so I'm teaching it again this fall. You this can joke about it, technical but, in fact, but in fact, if you have the opportunity to go to Yale Law School, and you don't take federal court with the keel, you have made a mistake. <laughs> so thank you for that, Andy. But this is state incorporation of federal law. And it's not so different than in our Moore versus Harper brief. We say a state statute 
can choose if it wants, even if the state constitution doesn't apply of its own force to state congressional elections, how a state regulates its congressional elections, even if one thought the, the state constitution didn't have anything to do with it of its own force, a state legislature could choose to say, we want our state constitution to apply to the congressional election, just like we want it to apply it does apply automatically to state legislative elections, and we want to have the same rules for state legislative elections and, and congressional elections. So even if one thought that the state constitution doesn't apply directly to congressional elections, the state legislature could choose to incorporate it by reference. That was what we wrote in the ISL brief. Now, let me give you two or three other examples of state incorporation. Suppose we have the federal rules of criminal procedure, and we do, and they apply to federal court adjudication, and they don't apply of their own force to state law adjudication in state courts. Of course they don't. They are about how federal courts operate. But a state, if it wants to, could choose to make the federal rules of civil procedure the rules for its own state courts and could even go so far, you know, without any federal violation, there might be issues of state constitutional implicated. If it said, we want state courts to follow federal rules of criminal, of civil procedure or criminal procedure for that matter, as construed by the U.S. Supreme Court, they could do that. Okay. And contrary wise, let's imagine the federal government in D.C. saying, instead of coming up with our own federal criminal code of D.C., we're just going to borrow Virginia's or Maryland's. Here's a national park. It's it's Yellowstone and, and it's a federal enclave and we get to regulate what happens in Yellowstone, but we're going to borrow, incorporate by reference, the state criminal code of Montana or Wyoming or what have you. Okay. A state, even if it might choose to make as part of its state criminal regulation certain federal elements. So that's one thing. And, and there are complexities here of preemption and, and other things that we, we could go into. But I want the audience to note that this is not altogether dissimilar from unconnected to the Moore versus Harper case and the Amar, Amar Calabresi brief as supported by Lipka and Duggan. Yeah, Second yeah. point, and then I'll end my discussion of this issue. Suppose actually that with the law apparently, and I'm not an expert on it, but it seems to say it's an aggravating factor if you misstated certain uh, financial forms and you misreported certain things in connection with, let's call it a predicate federal offense or a federal offense. Now, but they don't specify it. Even if the law doesn't require to specify it, wouldn't it be a better practice, you might think, to specify it? And, and the lawyer says, I don't want to give away you know, my strategy, this is, you know, my tactics and, and I don't have to, so I won't. You, but you could say, even if you don't have to, it's the better practice to actually be utterly transparent and tell the defendant and defense counsel in advance what's the particular federal offense or state offense that you have in mind so they can, you know, properly prepare their defense. So here I'm going to give an analogy to a thing called, well, two other things. We talked about grand juries. It's not required as a matter of federal constitutional law to allow the target of a state investigation to testify before the grand jury. You can, ind you can indict someone and charge them without ever having given them a chance to make their defense or something before the grand jury. 
There's no federal requirement that you let the target talk to the grand jury. But New York has a policy. We're going to do that. We're in general, there might be an exception here or there, but before we indict you, we're going to let you, if you want, you don't have to, but we're going to let you make your case before the grand jury. And we're going to maybe even let you bring your lawyer in. Maybe we didn't have to do that, but we're going to let you do that. So even if the Constitution, federal Constitution doesn't require the prosecutor to tip his hand, maybe it's the better practice. Here's another example. If the prosecutor has evidence that tends to support the defendant, exonerating evidence. We call it exculpatory evidence. There's a case called Brady. It's a United States Supreme Court case that says as a matter of due process, you have to share that information with the defense and defense counsel. If you've got stuff, if you talked to, if your investigators talked to some eyewitness and they actually said, oh, actually it wasn't the target. It was so-and-so, but eight other people say, oh no, it was, it was the target. And you, you indict the target. Everyone says, oh, it was a eight people said, but you actually talk to a ninth person says it wasn't A at all. It was B. And, and, and here's why I know that you haven't, that's exculpatory. And maybe, you know, the defendant doesn't have an investigatory team, doesn't have resources, doesn't even know that person exists. And you're never going to call that person to the stand that you might think that person just has bad eyesight or made a mistake or is a friend of the defense. There might be a lot of reasons you, you discount what that person says. And um, so you, you may not have an obligation to put that person on the stand, but. Brady versus Maryland says you do have an obligation to give that information to defense and defense counsel and even to give them maybe the transcript of your investigator's interrogation. That's exculpatory material. That's required. Some prosecutor's offices only do that. Other prosecutor's offices, as a matter of their policy or state law, state statutes or state constitutions, actually have an open file policy in which everything in their case, whether they deem it formally exculpatory or not, but, but all the information that they have subject to maybe some special exceptions for security and, and other purposes, but ordinarily everything in the file, unless there's a specific reason for withholding needs to be shared with the defendant and the defense counsel. These are called, you know, open file jurisdictions. And the reason that I know that this exists is because I saw it in my cousin Vinny, which is, you know, my, my, the entirety of my, my experience in the, in the, you know, the criminal justice system. Our, our audience needs to remember I'm not even licensed to practice law, but I actually do teach criminal procedure and truthfully know a bit about it. So even if you're not required, wouldn't be better policy to actually share with the defendant and defense counsel, and the rest of the world for that matter, what your theory of the case is, which is the underlying offense that you think is connected to the financial irregularity and, and improper reporting. One final wrinkle, and this is a brilliant paper that my student Steve Sachs wrote many years ago. He's now a very distinguished professor at Harvard Law School, former clerk to Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, uh, writes a lot with another one of my favorite students, Will Bode. Suppose, Andy, that there there's more than one possible underlying offense. The prosecutor, let's just to keep the math easy, thinks, actually, we think Trump's financial misreporting is connected and is in connection with four other crimes, aggravating crimes. And we're not going to specify anything now. And we're going to actually, at trial, introduce evidence of four different things that Trump was doing that are criminal, that are in connection with this financial misreporting, such that it's now a, fe a felony under New York law. And, and maybe some of them are state and others are federal, but the federal has been incorporated by reference, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Now, 
Here's the nice question. Suppose the jury has to be unanimous. There are 12 of them. Three of them thinks, yes, aggravating crime A was the, the basis of the reason for the irregularity. But nine say, no, he didn't do it for A. So three says, yes, he did. And nine say, no. But of the remaining nine, three says, oh, but he did it for B. But nine jurors say, no, it wasn't B. And three more say, oh, he did it for C, reason C, independent crime C. And the other nine say, no. And fourth say, D. So there's not unanimity at all on any one of these. And in fact, there's not even a simple majority on any one. For every one of these four, actually, in my hypothetical, nine jurors think that wasn't in play, but three think... Now, when you add up the three and the three and the three and the three, that's 12. Each one is convinced that there was an underlying offense that kicks this up into a felony territory, but there's not unanimity at all on which one it is. Has Trump, in such a situation, really been deprived of his right to proof beyond reasonable doubt on each of the elements of the, and unanimity on each of the relevant elements? For every juror is persuaded beyond reasonable doubt that one of these was in play, but they're not at all in agreement on which one. That's a nice, nice theoretical question that Steve Stacks um, wrote about. So did the great Peter Weston at University of Michigan law school wrote about a similar question. And and this is a nice lawyer's law issue that we might revisit later on. And with Steve's permission, we can actually cite to it um, and put it up on the website. Okay. So as I said, a lot more on this uh, to come. Uh, and by the way, just, you know, one other thing is that the, uh, the district attorney never has to charge Trump with the second crime, uh, looks like under the the uh, penal law just says that, um, here's what it says, a person is guilty of falsifying business records in the first degree when he commits the crime of falsifying business records in the second degree and when his intent to defraud includes an intent to commit another crime or to aid or conceal the commission thereof. So he doesn't even have to commit the crime. He has to have intent to commit another crime. So that, that would be... Clearly, you don't have to charge him with the crime in order to prove intent. Right. So, right. But there's not unanimity at all. Let's just imagine right. on crime, crime he had he, intent he ent- to commit. Right. He, exactly. Right. Right. Okay. So, very interesting. Okay. Uh, one more thing before we go. Professor Amar wishes to eat some crow. Yes, I need to apologize to everyone that this is long overdue. Long ago, I promised book plates to um, my loyal audience members, and I've been delinquent in that. Mea culpa. I'm on it, and I'm going to try to do it very soon. I have to get my taxes all organized, actually, my tax information as well. I still haven't gotten all my grades in from last semester. I, I promise everyone I am trying to get on the straight and narrow here, and I apologize profusely to you all um, and to Andy, because he, he was there when I made the promise, and we made it on this podcast. I have not forgotten, and I'm on it, and uh, we will try to get things out to you very soon. And my apologies for my delay. Sorry to let you down. Yeah, not to pile on, but I just... Uh, uh, no, pile uh, on, pile away. Well, no, this I is, just, just want to make sure that no one thinks that I, that I misrepresented. I, I did say in an earlier podcast that the book plates were all printed, and that was true. They were. 
Uh, we right. still have them. They just need, but yeah, what, they, you, they, want, they, you want the signature they, they, and the we, message. We, so. we could do the dog ate my homework and I could tell you all the, the concatenation no, no, of events just, and blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. But, but that's the, the audience. Um, mea culpa, you know, mea maxima culpa. This is on me and I'll try to rectify and repair the breach. Okay. So there you have it. Um, and uh, we'll be back next week with uh, with more apologies. No, <laughs> no, with, with, <laughs> with, with, with more fun. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.